The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we revisit the circumstances of Indonesia's once-fated Corruption Eradication Commission, universally known by its Indonesian acronym, the KPK. The commission established itself as one of the most trusted institutions in Indonesia through its numerous prosecutions of ministers and heads of state agencies, of political party figures and MPs from across the political spectrum, as well as judicial and law enforcement officers. But the KPK's many opponents, of course, appeared to strike a decisive blow in 2019 as a newly re-elected President Jokowi lent his support to amendments to the KPK's founding statute that undercut the commission's autonomy. The decision was one of the triggers of the largest wave of student protests in Indonesia since Suharto's fall in 1998. We spoke at the time to outgoing KPK Commissioner Dr. Laude Mohamed Sharif. It's well worth revisiting that episode if you missed it. Now, two years on, I'm joined by anti-corruption expert Dr. Ahmad Khoirul Umam to discuss the impact of these amendments on the KPK's ability to investigate corruption cases as well as the performance of a new set of commissioners appointed soon after these amendments were passed. Dr. Umam is Managing Director of the Paramedina Public Policy Institute in Jakarta. He also wrote his PhD at the University of Queensland on the politics of anti-corruption in Indonesia. Uh, Umam, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. You're welcome, Dave. I'm very happy to be here to discuss many things about uh, politics of anti-corruption in Indonesia. Yeah, no, very much looking forward to picking your brain on, on that topic today. And can I start by asking you, you know, it's now been two years since those controversial amendments to the KPK law were passed. What has been their impact over the past two years on the KPK's operations? There are many serious impacts, Dave, for the KPK because we know that the amendment of the law on KPK is a long and well-prepared strategy to weaken the KPK effectively because this amendment also opens all loopholes in the legal basis and also institutional design of the KPK that have become its fundamental deficiencies. So as a result, until today, for me, the KPK has lost uh, the public trust uh, after the amendment. We can see many things uh, why that's happened. For example, the current situation about the rising polemic uh, surrounding the civic knowledge test or test wawasan kebangsaan, which many believe that this is a mechanism or strategy to remove what they call as wild troublemakers within the anti-graph body. And then in the same time, not only the amendment, but also the new composition of the KPK leaders, they have successfully disconnected and also cut the KPK's productive communication in the previous time with the civil society element as the frontliner and supporter for the KPKs. So at the moment, KPK itself, they try to attack each other within the institution, but at the same time, its relation with the civil society elements, with the NGOs who was previously become their supporters getting worse now. And then at the same time, we also can see many things experienced by the KPK, 
in terms of the authority, we know that the KPK has an authority to halt an investigation or prosecution of corruption case by issuing a warrant for the halting of investigation and prosecution. And now that's already used by the leader of the KPK by giving to the one of the crazy rich family in Indonesia, Samsul Nur Salim, and also his wife, Miss Ichi, who have escaped to Singapore since a couple of decades ago. So many things happened that provide very serious implication to the KPK institutionally, especially related to the, the status of the KPK's employees. And now they are under a civil servant regulation. And at the same time, there is another body, which is new actually, the KPK supervisory body or oversight body. And we know that there is many implications because of this new body. There are very extensive conflict of interest from that. Now, there's a lot to cover in that answer. Um, perhaps we could start, I guess you've covered a, a number of amendments to the law forming the KPK, which undermine its autonomy. Could we start from the status of the staff as, as civil servants? Is that the reason converting the staff from employees of the KPK to regular civil servants? Is that the reason why uh, this civic knowledge test has been administered to those employees? I think, yeah. And most of anti-corruption activists in Indonesia and also civil society elements believe that the national vision test conducted by the KPK is, as I previously mentioned, a long and well-prepared mechanism to remove what they call troublemakers within the anti-corrupt body. And to some extent, the mastermind used a very a bit silly narrative, and, but that narrative is very effective, played by the mastermind to divide the KPK's public support by saying that the KPK is the nest of Taliban, the KPK is the hotbed of uh, Islamic radicals, and that was massively amplified by the buzzer and also the cyber troops to undermine the credibility of the KPK. And unfortunately, that hoax or fake news had been literally consumed by some progressive and moderate Islamic organizations, which has become a frontliner and also supporter of the KPK. But I would like to highlight there is another serious issue, more serious issue. The President Joko Widodo seems to use a face-saving strategy to stay away from the public pressures related to the KPK. And the president realized that the KPK, which was previously defined as the independent state agency, and now is considered as part of the executive agency, and under the new law on KPK, that's under the president authority. That's clearly mentioned within the Article 24 of the new law on the KPK. However, the president should have no reason to stay calm and silent, but unfortunately, President Joko Widodo doesn't show his strong commitment and political will in anti-corruption agenda in Indonesia. And he seems to me, he tries to ignore that anti-corruption is under serious threat now. So he just tried to close his eyes, his ears, or maybe his mind and his heart. So uh, a couple of days ago, I have discussion with some anti-corruption activists and also academics, I can feel how they feel 
where many of them already get stuck and they feel have no more hopes from the president. Sure, sure. And I mean, this has actually been a recurring pattern, hasn't it, in Jokowi's attitude to the KPK in that when the amendments to the law were first passed, he initially said he would consider changing them. And then that hasn't happened. And now with this request to overrule the results of this civics test, are we seeing the same pattern now? I mean, this is a change of change of attitude, I guess, from Jokowi, because at the beginning of his first term, he actually resisted attempts to weaken the KPK. What do you think has led to his change of heart? It could be a little bit speculative, but I think this could be considered as part of the factors influencing the changing characteristic and also a political behavior of the president. First, uh, we know that uh, President Jokowi was very ambitious to the economic development. And we know that his political campaign was very, very optimistic uh, in the beginning of 2014. He wanted to achieve 7 to 8% economic growth annually at that time. They campaigned, they called a Jokowi's effect. Unfortunately, after the first period happened, the Jokowi effect, yeah, it's nothing. We can't see uh, how is uh, the Jokowi's effect uh, during the first uh, situation. We know that during that period, the economic growth was around 5%, which is quite good, if not really good in the first period of administration. But at the same time, the government accused that the KPK's anti-corruption operation often caused political instability, consequently resisting potential foreign direct investment to come into the uh, Indonesia's uh, domestic market. So that could be the first reason why Jokowi's behavior changed dramatically uh, to the KPK. And then the second is, there is something a bit practical. We know in 2019, the KPK conducted red-handed operation, Dave, uncovering an imported onion corruption case. I think that was around August 2019 which involved not only member of parliament from the ruling party, but also allegedly uh, involved a big name who is from the PDIP's top leader's nuclear family. So this is very, very significant. And when this case uncovered, that could become a serious attack, delegitimizing the ruling party's moral and also political credibility. That's why... When I really noticed after that situation, the government behavior is really, really different and getting much more wild or cruel to the KPK and just let the KPK attacked by many parties. So this could be second factors. And the third factors, of course, I noticed that President Jokowi's political will and commitment it's not really serious enough as the highest commander of anti-corruption in Indonesia. We know that the main factor determining the success or the failure of anti-corruption is the political will of the top political leader. And we know that the president, in this case, is the highest commander of anti-corruption agenda. But in fact, yeah, like political will of the president, everybody knows that. We wish that in the second period of the administration, uh, President Jokowi will, will try to be more uh, less political, 
we really hope that he will provide adequate protection for the KPK. But yeah, it's nothing. You mentioned the importance of the political will of the president in anti-corruption efforts, and also that this new amended KPK law in 2019 place the commission directly under the authority of the president. One of the potential avenues of intervention that people were worried about at the time was this new supervisory body of, I believe, five people who would approve wiretaps and also evaluate the ethics of the KPK, its commissioners and staff. How has that supervisory body turned out? I mean, what's been the view of the people who have been appointed to the supervisory body and, and how interventionist have they been? After these two years implemented, now we can reconfirm that the KPK does not need any supervisory body as stated within the new law on the KPK. So the claim that the KPK is uncontrolled super body, I think it's much more political rather than a solid argument based on structural policy evaluation. So in fact, the KPK has been supervised well by for example, financially by the state audit board or BPK, and then politically by the Commission 3 of the House of Representatives, and then publicly by the media and also civil society. And internally, they also have very strong and decisive, I think, internal supervision department within the KPK. So I think after these two years, and then we witness many things from this new supervisory body. And as I previously uh, mentioned, there is a serious problem of conflict of interest within this supervisory body. So, for example, when it must process the public complaints related to the KPK's leaders, especially, for example, Pa Firli Bauri, the chairman of the KPK, and also currently there are some reports uh, related to the other KPK's commissioners, they work very slowly. They work very slowly and uh, the decision is completely beyond our imagination. But at the same time, when they try to process public complaint related to the, the, the middle or maybe lower level KPK officials, they can work quickly and effectively. So this is something a bit ridiculous. But yeah, now we can reconfirm that actually KPK doesn't need any supervisory body. And on the other hand, we also know that because of this new body, as you previously mentioned, that create another serious problem, especially related to the alleged leaking of search and also investigation activities conducted by the KPK investigators. And I think what's happened in South Kalimantan, the leaking information, I mean, uh, of the search and investigation activities in the mining company office in South Kalimantan has been a very serious spotlight for the civil society. In this case, the KPK was investigating suspected bribery of the Taxation Directorate General in connection with its audit of a mining company, but found no evidence when it launched raids in South Kalimantan, raising suspicions of a leak. Unfortunately, that leak of information is not the first time. So that could be the third or maybe the fourth time and that's uh, what happened, suspected of dragging uh, the KPK's leaders and also employees. So I noticed that many anti-corruption activists and also some civil society elements, they try to recommend and wait for the concrete action from the KPK itself 
starting uh, from the investigation of the alleged violations of the code of conduct uh, by the KPK supervisory body and investigation related to the obstruction of justice actions. But until today, there is no clear result stated by the KPK. So it just, yeah, let it go on. And everybody already forgot what's happened a couple of months ago. Now, one of the other changes you mentioned that came in in the amendments, when the KPK was initially formed, once it established someone as a suspect, it couldn't halt its investigation until it had brought the case to trial. It now newly has the ability to halt an investigation, and you mentioned it had done it in, in one case of an Indonesian conglomerate. Um, how often has it used that ability to halt investigations over the past two years? Not really often. Until today, we just noticed they did to one of conglomerates. But of course, we have to be more critical in order to understand why they give that privilege to the conglomerates whose interests uh, surrounding that decision. And we know that that big names are really close to the current power holders. And yeah, based on the history that I read, he has very close relation to the one of the elite of the ruling party. So maybe not really often, but we don't know behind the scenes. Because I think the current capital leaders, they try to, I would like to say, to lie. or They try to cover what they did. For example, Dave, a couple months ago, they mentioned that they already reported the red line to the Interpol related to the one of the famous names in Indonesia, Harun Masiku. He's from the ruling party, and the case involving him is related to the elite of the ruling power. Harun Masiku is a politician with President Jokowi's party, PDIP, whom the KPK suspect of involvement in bribery of the Electoral Commission. Masiku and PDIP wanted him to replace another MP who died after being elected, but the Electoral Commission decided the seat should go to another of the party's candidates. Another PDIP politician and an Electoral Commission commissioner have already been convicted in connection with this case. And unfortunately, the silliest thing for me is when the Interpol mentioned or uncovered the information that why the information, the red notice information about the Harun Masiku is not listed within the website of the Interpol. The Interpol said that that's based on the KPK's order. So they claim they already spread the red notice, but in fact, they also asked to the Interpol, for example, to cover the information. So this is something contradictive behavior, and we don't know why that's happened, why they did that. And I think that's very close to the political and also economic interest related to the power holders right now. Because, I mean, this new leadership of the KPK came in in December 2019, only a few months after the amendments to the KPK law was passed. And, you know, at the time they were appointed, certainly there were concerns in particular around the chairperson, Fili Bahuri, because there were claims he'd violated ethics as an investigator at the KPK by meeting a witness in one of the corruption investigations. How would you assess his performance overall as, as chairperson of the KPK over the past two years? But Firli Bahuri has played a significant role in this situation. He understands well whose interests threatened or benefited by the silent oppression 
crippling the KPK's power and capacity. He understands well how is the power structure surrounding the political oppression to crash the KPK's power and capacity. And as the chairman of the KPK, he successfully used his big authority and also previous networks, either in political, governmental, or in law enforcement environment uh, to mobilize all resources to support his moves and also his positions, including conducting the national vision test. And he also tried to facilitate, for example, the additional teams of investigators that were seconded from the police without adequate fit and proper tests to the KPK. So Firli Bahuri played very significant role and he has power to manage and also to pressure other KPK's commissioners who try to challenge him. So for me, as the uh, outsider of the KPK, almost there is no check and balances within the current KPK's leadership. And that's a very serious problem within the KPK itself right now. So if the commissioners are not really in a position of challenging Firli Bahuri, what about the commission's investigators and other staff? I mean, as you mentioned, there's this civics test which could see 50-odd members of the KPK dismissed. I understand that their status is still unclear. Has that generated dissent from within the KPK towards its leadership? I think all parties within the KPK now already naturalized, quote by quote, institutionally, politically, and they prefer to be calm and also silent rather than putting them or their fate into a serious problem. So to some extent, yeah, there is a solidarity action to support the 75 employees, but in general, they try to keep silent rather than uh, challenging this situation. Because what's happening in the KPK is not only about Firli Bahuri, but they realize, completely understand what's political structure, political power behind this situation. So that's happening. Unfortunately, the impact of the changing status from the independent state agency into the civil servant status, KPK, much problematic. And I believe that this situation will seriously impact on the future KPK's professionalism, independency, and also integrity. Yeah, no, you've certainly outlined some very serious changes to the character of the of the commission. I guess when we turn to its investigations and prosecutions, how have those changes precipitated by the amendments to the KPK law and the appointment of new commissioners been reflected in the cases that the KPK has tackled over the past two years? Has that changed compared to previous time? It changed significantly, Dave. So there is significant decline in the KPK's anti-corruption capacity. And for example, in the previous leadership periods, the average of red-handed oppression, or we call operasi tangkap tangan, was around 100 cases uh, per year. But based on the data uh, last year, Just under the new leadership, the KPK only held around seven red-handed operations in 2020. And meanwhile, from the beginning of 2021 to May, there was only two red-handed operations only. So I think that's become a clear indicator how the KPK's performance declined significantly. Some people may say that the current leadership tried to focus on the 
prevention function. They don't want to create the political instability, so focusing on prevention. But in fact, this data could not explain that situation properly. So yeah, significant decline. Yeah, I mean, that's a very stark contrast from 100 a year down to single figures. Does the COVID-19 pandemic account for any of that drop? Or is this really the, the impact of the changes to the KPK? I don't think that's related to the uh, pandemic situation. Of course, everybody impacted on this situation, the pandemic situation. But at the same time, we also know that there is serious issue during uh, this pandemic situation. For example, a couple months ago, or maybe last, last year, eh, the senior KP case investigator successfully uncovered uh, the corruption case related to the social aid or Bantuan Social. And they still use the new law on the KPK, and they still successfully catch a big fishes or big names with a big money. But in the same time, they also realize that there is another big problems related to the transparency and accountability related to the state's funding on social aid, and then the pandemic treatment, and then also we call it FAN, uh, uh, the funding for saving the national economy. And unfortunately, we think that attempt to weaken the KPK right now is a part of the power structure to facilitate the corrupt political and also economic interests to conduct their illegitimate things during this pandemic situation. Because we know that election in 2024 will be conducted just a couple years from now. And during this situation, there is no fresh funding for political things. We know that the private funding is not as liquid as previous one. And the only sources uh, for the political funding uh, in the future will be provided only from the public fund. So the public fund uh, will be yeah, a source uh, from state funding itself. So the weak KPKs uh, provide very significant impact on the current performance of the government and also uh, will seriously impact for the future governance in Indonesia, especially related to the political interest in 2024. Sure, sure. So because, you know, it's been uh, common practice in the past for political parties to amass electoral war chests from the ministries that they control. So, you know, you, you can certainly see a clear interest in not having an active KPK to uncover those sorts of corruption cases leading into to 2024, as you say. Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, on that front, we still have seen a, a, a number of cabinet ministers from Jokowi's cabinet arrested by the KPK um, over the past two years. The social affairs minister, Giuliari Batubara, and the, the fisheries minister, Eddie Prabowo, for example. How do you interpret those arrests? Why didn't it protect those ministers that they were part of Jokowi's ruling coalition? Those high-profile arrests have been conducted by the senior investigators who are currently being removed by the national vision test, and they still can optimize at that time uh, their capacity to catch a big fish or big names by using the new law. But uh, yeah, look at after the senior investigator terminated from their position in the post-nation vision test. So it's completely different, and the KPK is completely different now in terms of its capacity. 
and they claims, as I previously mentioned, focusing on preventive, but in the same time, it's completely powerless. And I think related to the Jokowi's governing coalition, the president seems to be yeah, try to use a face-setting strategy. So it's kind of, we call it swalayan. So please help yourself uh, when the KPK comes. And then, yeah, uh, that's part of the risk. And you have to be responsible for, uh, with your risk. But again, I don't believe that the president provide adequate supervision in terms of the minister's performance. Maybe the presidential palace could claim that they have no adequate capacity to supervise each minister, but at least the president have very big power, big authority, and they should do that for each position within the government. You mentioned the impact that the dismissal or seeming dismissal of these senior investigators is having that we may not again see the the prosecution of high-profile cases. And there's perhaps no investigator of higher public profile in the KPK than Novel Baswedan, this former police officer who was then attacked near his residence in 2017 with acid and lost the sight in one eye and, and most of the sight in the other. Now, the investigation into who was responsible for the acid attack on him dragged on really to no conclusion for, for quite some time. But then we did have a couple of police officers convicted in, in mid-2020 over the attack. How do you interpret those convictions? Uh, why was someone, uh, you know, if only seemingly a, a mid-ranking couple of police officers brought to trial in the end? Yes, Dave. So uh, for me personally, this is unfinished case. We must remember the police needs around three years to uncover that case. While we know that Indonesian police is very professional, when terrorism action happened, Dave, our police can uncover the terrorist network and also their logistics support quickly, very quick. Today happened, tomorrow they can uncover everything. But now, related to the physical assault on the high-profile KPK investigators, Mas uh, Novel Baswedan, and also other investigators, our police seems losing their professionalism. I don't know why. It means that that's indicated how, yeah, there is a big interest flying behind this situation. And on the other hand, many believe that the two convicted police officers, they were not a culprit. So they were just a scapegoat. And that also confirmed by Mas Novel Baswedan that he never knows and he never interact and he never having chat with that two police officer. So that case still leaves a very big question mark and also big mystery with the mastermind behind the attack. And unfortunately, again, the president, who should provide very adequate protection to the anti-corruption workers, seems to me he tried to use face-saving strategy. He tried to stay away from the controversy and he will react to the situation when the political dynamics threatened or potentially delegitimize his moral credibility or his political legitimacy. Yeah. No, well, I mean, when you mentioned the police seemingly dragging their feet in the investigation of attacks on KPK investigators, of course, the police have been one of the primary adversaries of the KPK over time. In Indonesia, you know, there's been massive confrontations between the police and the KPK in what it was 2009, 2010, 2012, when the KPK has 
investigated senior police officers. And then, of course, the KPK effectively vetoed the appointment of Budi Gunawan as National Police Chief in 2015. With the changes that have been made to the KPK over the past two years, has the relationship between the police and the KPK changed significantly? Today, maybe yes, it changed significantly. When a couple years ago, we can distinguish between crocodile and lizard, chichak or buaya, but at the same time now, uh, I think both are quite similar. Quite similar. And that's also reflected by many national surveys. And I did a couple national surveys in the last three years. And the last survey that I already uh, released just in the beginning of this month, and that's confirmed how the approval rate and the public trust to the KPK is completely different comparing to the maybe a decades ago or maybe a couple years ago. It's completely different. Now the, the, the KPK's approval rate is quite similar with the a police. Okay, so I, I guess we've reached a position where the public now see both the police and KPK as crocodiles, perhaps, rather than, you know, the, the gecko versus crocodile contrast of, of the parts. You know, you're, you're painting a very pessimistic picture of the future of the KPK there. Where does this leave supporters of anti-corruption efforts in Indonesia, in you know, civil society, in academia, maybe even in politics or, or government? What avenues and strategies are, are left to people seeking to, to fight corruption in Indonesia? Now, the only one we can do is we still really hoped to the changing mind of the president and we really call his political quote-by-quote intervention to save and to protect the anti-graft body. Because what's happened today, all anti-corruption activists, all civil society, they have tried their best. But at the same time, we also witness how the capacity of civil society has been fragmented. So there is pro and contra. For example, when we talk about the narrative or the hoax or fake news, mentioning that uh, KPK is the nest of the Taliban, is the hotbed of the Islamic radicals. There are pros and cons. And we also a little bit surprised that uh, those who are yeah, moderate and also progressive Islamic uh, organization, for example, and those who were the frontliner and supporter of the KPK and then now completely changed the position. So I'm still trying to be optimistic, but unfortunately, all this situation forced me to be more pessimistic. So that's why some academics, their projection to the future anti-corruption agenda in Indonesia, they mentioned, I think it's not gloomy anymore. Our projection is not gloomy anymore, they said, but it's getting darker, darker and darker. And we don't want this situation getting worse. Of course, we're still trying to consolidate our capacity as part of the civil society element. And we try to enforce what we know, what should we do to all stakeholders. And in the end, of course, the political will of the top political leader is the key of the success and also to provide the protection for the current situation, especially for the the KPK institutionally. Uh, Umam, it is a dark picture indeed that you've painted uh, of anti-corruption in Indonesia at the moment, but thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights with us on Talking Indonesia today. It's been great. Thank you very much, Dave. (laughs) 
That was Dr. Ahmad Koirul Umam, Managing Director of the Paramedina Public Policy Institute in Jakarta. Talking Indonesia returns on 9 September with my co-host Dr. Charlotte Setiadi. Until then, you can find the entire archive of Talking Indonesia for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you access your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.